Welcome to The Shill Show. On this, the inaugural episode launching The Shill Show podcast, I hereby pronounce The Shill Show the crowning triumph of 2020. So I'm Amy Schiller, and I am the founder and the host of this podcast, as well as the accompanying newsletter, also titled The Shill, which you can find at theshill.substack.com. A little bit about me, I am a writer, an academic, I have a postdoctoral fellowship at Dartmouth. I'm writing a book on philanthropy and the role of philanthropy in public life, but I write about a whole bunch of other things ranging from politics to pop culture to feminism and matters of lifestyle, shall we say. Every episode, I'll expand on the topic that I write about in the accompanying newsletter. And in a very meta twist, this episode is gonna comment on the state of knowledge production and how we monetize it and how we pay for it, how we decide it's worth paying for. You're not paying for this podcast or the newsletter. The question is, why does someone? So after those very charming rants from me, I'll turn to the back half of the show, which functions much the way a late night talk show might. So you have the host's monologue followed by fun segments with special guests. And I'm going to test these over the next several months. And I hope that you, the listeners, will use the comment functions on be it the newsletter or on Apple Podcasts to comment on which of the segments you like and you find fun and interesting because I'm testing these and I want to know what resonates with you so this week starting off i think on a high note the back half will be a segment with two special guests talking about pop culture knowledge how we realize that there are gaps in our pop culture knowledge how that makes us feel apparently this is an extremely fraught topic which i found out when i asked people to share some of their personal ruptures and gaps of knowledge with me only to get 200 comments on a single post. And that segment is called Lacuna Matata, where we take a gap in your pop culture knowledge and we make it okay. I won't give away this the gap that we'll be talking about, but it's, it's pretty epic. But first I wanna talk about knowledge production. So the question is, why do I, as well as many other people, publish a newsletter? Why am I starting a podcast? A lot of people are doing that as well. And I'm also publishing it on a platform called Substack. And Substack has very quickly become the platform of choice for individual writers to build a subscriber base. Those are people who subscribe directly to them. They don't subscribe to The New Yorker to read their articles. They don't subscribe to any other mediating institution, an academy, a publishing house, or a magazine or a newspaper. They subscribe to them. This is a very popular phenomenon that's starting to happen definitely among, first, either among sort of the top talent, people who already have built followings and say, ah, why don't I just cut out the middleman as it were? And I'll write anything I want and take it directly, you know, to the people who will so kindly click on this and take it directly to your inboxes instead of making you go through whatever the page view limit is or the paywall is on a publication to read my stuff. Forget that. You just want to read me. 
the way that Substacks often work for those people is there's a free edition. Maybe it comes out weekly. Maybe it comes out even less frequently. And then there's tiers of content to which you subscribe, right? You could pay $5 a month. You could pay $10 a month. Those are sort of typical tiered levels. And first, what they'll sell in those sort of paid content category is just more content. You just get more access, more commentary, more food for thought from these people, more intellectual labor. So you might be a subscriber, but what you also get as a subscriber is you get invitations to online events or online talks. Could be a book club, could be a special lecture, right? You just get a kind of VIP access. The interesting thing is that this isn't that different from different, for example, membership models. If you were a member of a performing arts institution or something along those lines, maybe your membership would come with access to different special events. And here, some for whatever reason, they're being marketed as subscriptions. Now you're a subscriber. As I say in the newsletter, Anne Helen Peterson has done this after leaving BuzzFeed. Her substack's very much worth reading, by the way. It's called Culture Study. Matt Iglesias has just chosen to establish his own substack, Glenn Greenwald. There's also the sort of corresponding rise of Patreon. And Patreon has sort of been used in this manner for individual artists to support themselves, although usually it corresponds more to visual artists, maybe musical artists, and, yes, podcasts. So a famous example of that would be the Chapo Trap House podcast, which is a leftist podcast about politics. But they rake in, I'm not kidding, hundreds of thousands of dollars in Patreon subscription fees every month spread among seven hosts, but still the seven hosts are doing great. And I point this out because it's right on a line that I will always find very generative and interesting, certainly as somebody who writes about philanthropy a lot and thinks about how and why we pay for things and what it what is the difference between donating as a sort of endorsement, a financial endorsement of something's value, even without a direct transactional benefit to ourselves and paying for something that has that kind of direct transactional correspondence of I paid for this, ergo, I get that, right? Much more sort of equilibrium, um, much more commercial and transactional and transparent. But again, sort of right on that line of is this something I find intrinsically valuable? And is this something that I purchase so that I can consume it? Which aren't necessarily mutually exclusive, but it is just interesting to think about what kind of pitch and what balance between those two we find more compelling and at different times, which ones. So you have an interesting phenomenon happening. The institutions that used to support the production and dissemination of knowledge are continuing to collapse in on themselves at a very rapid rate. So now you have creators who, for better or worse, can succeed, but it's hard, right? So on the one hand, it's very democratizing to say, oh, I can just start my own publication and charge for it. And there's a whole apparatus that allows me to do that more easily than having to start a billing department for myself. On the other hand, you don't have the institution who does any lifting for you in terms of paying you, publishing you, 
marketing you. It's all you. Just more gig economy glamour that we're serving over here. And which you, dear listener, are now participating in. Congratulations and welcome. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Shill Show and an original segment we like to call Lacuna Matata, where we take a gap in your pop culture knowledge and we make it okay. We have two special guests today, Allie Brand Stern and Noam Stern. So Allie and Noam, say a little bit about A, who you are, B, maybe some sense of what kind of confidence you're bringing in your cultural literacy to this conversation. So Allie, why don't you go first? Okay. I'm feeling very strong and very confident about my cultural literacy. I think that I benefit from the fact that I grew up with an older sister who subscribed to a lot of the magazines growing up, like Teen Beat or Tiger or whatever that one was called, People Magazine. And I would always read them when she was done with them. And she was really into pop music and reality television. So it was always kind of like in the background. I was just kind of absorbing it even when I wasn't actively engaged. Noam and I have been married for a thousand years when we met you in the year 2000 and it is now 2020. So we've, we've been together for 20 years and we've been married for 12, 12 years. Oh my gosh, 12,000 years. And we have two beautiful kids. Noam, you're up. So the three of us all met in the year 2000. And I think that was probably the peak of my cultural literacy. And it was not a high peak. I uh, grew up in a modern Orthodox community, modern Orthodox Jewish, I should say, I should say community, and attended a Jewish day school that was somewhat sheltered. And I think I had a great upbringing, but was certainly a little bit detached from American pop culture. So yes, I don't have strong cultural confidence in my cultural confidence. Here's the question that I ask all of my guests before we delve into the specific cracks in people's cultural literacy. The name of this segment is, I'll repeat, Lacuna Matata. I saw the two of you laugh. The question is, do I need to explain that title to you? I don't think so. No. Okay. No. I ask because it is itself sort of... It's a, a wonderful th- phrase. Thank you. <laughs> it's a test case because, again, it like all cultural literacy is usually an intersection of what have you been exposed to and how like deeply ingrained is it in your memory. And so to have the specific range of, yes, I know this very academic term of lacuna that means a gap or, you know, some sort of like inappropriate absence of something. And matata, as in the Lion King Hakuna Matata, that requires two pretty specific and yet so far fairly common um, literatures, shall we say, from which people draw their, um, their cultural literacy. But anyway, I ask all of my guests because it does give us at least a solid place to start from. Um, when we talk about what we know and what we don't and why and how it makes us feel. Now, so you guys have a special 
maybe a bit of a stage act, I would say, um, in terms of what you're going to share with us today. So I'd like the two of you to please narrate the, uh, not just the gap that we'll be discussing, but how this gap revealed itself to the two of you. Okay. So we were with a group of friends and we were having a game night and one of the games that everyone had was taboo and I am awesome at taboo. So I was like, we're going to win. We got this. And Noam and I were a team as we often are. And we were doing pretty well. I was the one who was guessing the cards. He had the cards in front of him and we get to one card and Noam is just looking at it and looking at it. And I I was like, you got to tell me something. And after a while, he just shrugs his shoulders and he says, Noam, what was your amazing clue for that particular (laughs) taboo card? It was, I'm pretty sure she's black. (laughs) (laughs) That was the clue. I am pretty sure she's black. Not she is a woman of color. She is black. Okay, and and who who was on whose name was on the card? Whitney Houston. Whitney Houston. Not sure she's black. Pretty sure Whitney Houston. You may be the only person in history who has been unclear as to the blackness of Whitney Houston. Needless to say, I did not guess correctly. And we lost. And this is a story that I bring up in our marriage so frequently that it's like part of our historical narrative. Okay, here's what I like about this story. And I'd like to turn it over to to Noam's perspective in a second. It really compresses the entire phenomenon that we're discussing in one like really tight little nugget. Because not only did you have this very urgent moment of panicked recognition that you did not know something that you were supposed maybe supposed to know you also got what normally happens in maybe more like titrated doses over the years right where like you don't know something and every so often it's a little uncomfortable at parties instead it was this like direct conflict with your spouse that has now become like a repeated trope about your, so really like, it's just a nice concentrated dose of this entire situation. Tell us about that moment and the emotions you experienced from your perspective. You see the taboo card, Mm -hmm. see the name Whitney Houston. What happened inside your brain? What happened inside my brain was, I know this is a famous person. I don't know who this is. It, it certainly was a, this is, this is something that, that most people could do when confronted with this challenge. I, I'm aware of that. And so I am going to reach for anything I can find in my mind that could be associated with this name. All right. So a certain panic sets in, a bit of shame sets in, right? Knowing that this could not be you. And you know, a noble attempt, I would say, to recover what you could. Can you name one song, like literally any song that Whitney Houston sings? Um, I'm, I'm mentally grasping again. 
We'll do a little playlist in the comments on the newsletter okay. um, for you. Just like, and I'm sure I've appreciated her songs, just right. not associated her name with them. So if you have to guess, like, obviously in this anecdote, there's a lot going on. And it's really about just the abyss, right? The depth of absence, right? Truly the lacuna-ist situation. So it's the depth of that that is interesting. But also, Whitney Houston is, I would say, at this point, pretty omnipresent in like mainstream popular culture. And I'll get in a little bit more to like how and why that came to be. But Noam, if you had to guess, like, why is Whitney Houston significant? To Certainly to the extent that your loving wife was so befuddled at your um, lack of awareness of her existence. I have to say that I don't know. All right. Because I am in that abyss. Yeah. Cool. You know what? That's good. It's good to just claim the land on which you stand. Whitney Houston from the mid 80s through, I would say the late 90s, in fact, maybe right up until the time when uh, when we met on the campus of Brandeis University, she was renowned for her skill. She was a star in movies and in music. She was very striking and she just had this, she had, she was almost like a different level of celebrity, I would say. So she comes from a famous gospel family. So Sissy Houston, her mother's a famous gospel singer. And there's many ways in which she's like the transfer of gospel music into pop in a particular way, in like a very like accessible, fun, popular way. And, but her voice just comes from that sort of tradition. So there's an amazing piece that I'm going to post in the chat for you guys in case you want to read it. That is about Whitney Houston singing maybe the most famous recorded version of the Star Spangled Banner ever. She was the singer of the Star Spangled Banner at the Super Bowl in 1991. And she performed it like the Blue Angels, because in the middle of the Iraq War, the Blue Angels flew overhead. It was so stirring. She's there in this like white tracksuit and like a headband. And her rendition was so incredible that it was released as a single. Like it was the the Star Spangled Banner was released as a commercial single because her performance of it was so amazing. I mean, so that's 1991. So that's the that's the kind of thing that happened. You get Whitney Houston singing as far as Star Spangled Banner. The next year she stars in The Bodyguard, which, by the way, the Bodyguard soundtrack is the best-selling soundtrack album of all time. It sold a million units in a week in 1992. So kind of bonkers. That's the level of stardom we're talking about here. And that is like the peak very much of her fame. She had a very tragic downfall. Yeah, I just remember when I heard that Whitney Houston had died, just feeling really, really sad because... I think towards the end of her life, there may have been substance abuse issues. And if I'm remembering, there was some like video released of her acting erratically or being verbally abusive to staff or something like that. And it was just sort of this shining star that's just fallen. Yeah. So that covers a lot of the key points here. So Whitney Houston having kind of reached this pinnacle of stardom that you can only imagine is like difficult for anybody to achieve, but for her to do it as a black woman was particularly remarkable to have her music 
reach that level of mainstream acclaim was really impressive. There is a lot I can post, I'll post some supplemental material on this. There's a lot to be said about how her, first of all, she suffered some childhood sexual trauma. She also had a family that clearly put a lot of pressure on her as many young stars often do. And she had issues with substance abuse Throughout her career, though, really, it's in the late 90s and 2000s when it really becomes public. Yeah, by the late 90s, and this is, you know, again, a bit on the decline of her career, she would arrive late to interviews. She gave a, an interview, TV interview with Diane Sawyer, where she was questioned about her use of crack as a drug and famously replied, crack is whack, crack is cheap. That was her rebuttal. Uh, to this query about her mm-hmm. and that crack was uh, beneath her as a drug to use. February 11th of 2012, she was found unconscious in her suite at the Beverly Hilton Hotel. So her arc is very much tragic. On the other hand, her artistry itself, it has this longevity that's kind of unparalleled. I mean, the song that I think of when I think of her is I Want to Dance with Somebody. Which, um. Yeah, it will be at any wedding you go to or maybe any wedding that plays secular music. Although I would not put it past a simcha band to have learned I Want to Dance with Somebody at some point. <laughs> I'm um, sure it sounds great in Klezmer, uh, clarinet version. Noam, do you know the song that we're talking I about? I do, I do know the song. You, you know yes. I Want to Dance with Somebody. Hey, look at the progress we've made. This is, this is so, there's so much growth happening here tonight. <laughs> Yeah, but that song is like one of those songs that will endure long past the tawdry details of her later life and death because it's just an incredible piece of music. Her voice um, similarly has that kind of, I think, very transcendent power. But yeah, the the reason that she was that that you would have known her is because she was basically one of the biggest stars of our childhood. And so then I have to ask the closing question, which is, has your lacuna been matata tonight? I, th- I think my lacuna has been matated. Um, <laughs> <Good>. You know. <laughs>